So we're, we're in the midst kind of of a series looking at faith, saving faith, what it looks like. And so in one sense, it actually started back in July when Wes came up and preached about what is the nature of faith? What does it really look like? What is it? And then uh, we talked about the enemy of faith, which is self-righteousness. We looked at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and, and someone who believes they have faith, but in fact, they have something that is so contrary to it that it actually keeps them from the kingdom of God. Whereas the tax collector represents someone who is truly one who comes to faith in Christ. And then we've looked at what is assurance of faith? What does it mean to have a comfort, a confidence, a peace, and a rest in Christ, knowing that we are his. And now we're going to start looking at the fruit of faith. What is the fruit that faith bears? So we're in James 2, 14 to 26. So look there with me and hear the reading of God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, That faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would use your word this morning so that we don't merely say things about your word, that we don't merely hear things about your word, but that, Lord, you would transform us to be doers of your word, that we would hear with the hearing of faith, that we would receive it with the humility of faith, that we would act upon it with the desire to honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had the experience where you you go to grab some sort of cord or rope or something, maybe a hose, maybe it's uh, headphones, if you still have corded headphones, or it's a charger cord, and when you go to grab that corded thing, you find, instead of it nicely, neatly waiting for you as you had, you had once set it there, it is in the most disheveled, tangled, uh, wrapped up mess that you have ever found something in before. And in fact, it's so tangled up that you spend more time trying to untangle it than you do actually using the item. And you're spending so much time untangling it that you think, you know what, I think we have the budget for a new hose. I think we have a budget for a new extension cord. Because sometimes the knots and twists and tangles are so bad you wonder, you know, what kind of gremlin came here overnight and, and wrapped this thing up? You know, sailors could not even do this if they were tasked with it. That experience of finding that something knotted and, and tangled and twisted and wondering how to unravel it and disentangle it is a bit like how one experiences the Bible when you closely read Romans 3.28 
and James 2.24. Now, if you've had this experience before, I'm going to set them side by side for you. And you tell me if you don't feel a bit of entanglement with these. So Romans 3.28, this is Paul speaking. A person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I hear James 2.24. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wait a minute. If, if he said that, how can he say this? And if he said this, how can he say that? The more you think about it, the more you set them side by side and try to analyze them, you can start to feel your brain being like that hose in your backyard. It's starting to get twisted and tangled. The water's not running through it. And the more you think about it, you eventually have a full-blown, as Mike Bruce calls it, Charlie horse between the ears. And it hurts. And add this to it. When you go to church history to find an answer, you find that there's just as much entanglement and twisting. Because you see that the the Roman Catholics would wave James 2.24 as their banner, saying, see, our doctrine of justification by faith and works is fortified by what James has to say. And then you read about a man named Martin Luther who got very angry, called the the Pope many names, and he said, well, I have Romans 3.28. And he waved it at his banner saying, no, we are justified by faith alone apart from works. And Martin Luther also said some not not so nice things about the book of James. He called it an epistle of straw. So now the twisting and tangling gets worse and the Charlie horse is not going away. So what are we to do? How do we disentangle this do we give up and say we'll never be able to untangle this is, is this an unknowable unreconcilable issue do we give in and say there must be a contradiction between james and paul they're, they're in total disagreement it's clear or do we use the brains that god has given us do we press in and press forward to try and harmonize these things to try and wrestle them to the ground to see what is james saying what is paul saying how do they line up And do we come to find that James and Paul are not enemies, but actually allies fighting different enemies? Well, I have 25 more minutes left, so we're going to go with the third option. Because the best best path forward when we come to issues, when we come to tension, is to wrestle with it, to ask questions of it, to inquire it to the ground. Because oftentimes when we do that intellectual work of untangling and untwisting, it often provides the most enlightenment, the most enrichment and edification when we do finally come to a solution, when we're able to see those things in light of each other. So here's how I want to proceed this morning. We're going to start by looking at James and dealing with James on his own terms, letting him speak. Then, after that, we're going to look and see how Paul and James are not enemies, but actually allies fighting against different enemies. And then I want to seek to draw out some practical applications for us from what James has to tell us about faith. So we're going to start with James 2, 14 to 26. And in this passage, James has a very significant question in mind because he is witnessing a very significant problem in the church. The question that James has in mind is this. What kind of faith saves? What kind of faith is saving faith? And you see this question When you look at verse 14, he starts to allude to it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have work? Can that faith save him? I.e., what kind of faith saves? And notice, he's not asking about 
what quantity of faith saves. He's not, he's not saying it must be large versus small. He's not asking about what quality of faith saves. He's not saying it has to be strong versus weak. He's talking about kind of faith. He's asking about the, the nature, the essence, the substance, the life of faith. And he's asking this because he is witnessing a significant problem in the congregations that he's in charge of. Alistair Begg does a good job of articulating what that problem was that James was witnessing. He says this, James is witnessing individuals who are making big boasts and big claims about faith, but in actual fact, they are great on words, but absent in deeds. Their lips have much to say, but their lives have little to show. They can recite a creed with the best of them, but there is no accompanying conduct. That's the problem that James sees, which is what drives the question that he asks. What kind of faith saves? So we're going to look at three answers that James gives to that question. First answer, verses 14 to 17, James gives this answer, and he states in the negative. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a words-only faith. Faith is more than just right words. So verse 14, again, James begins by posing this question, and there's a key word that I want you to notice in this question. Look there again with me. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? The key word that James is highlighting there is says. The kind of faith that James is signaling out, is looking at, is not faith generically. It's a words-only faith. A faith that just merely exists in speaking the right words. It's all talk and no walk. It has much to say and little to show. And he goes on to illustrate what, this, what he means by this. Look at this example in verse 15 and 16. For brother or sister, so someone in, in the church that you call home, someone who is near and dear to your heart, someone that you know is part of your biological family, your spiritual family, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and be filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So the point of the illustration that James is putting here is that a words only faith is a worthless faith. Think about it. If you're cold, let's say you know what that is like to experience. I know from Florida, it's hard. But let's say you're cold because you live in a cold climate and you lack the proper clothing for bearing up in that cold climate. And someone comes up to you, and they have a smile on their face, they look cheery, they look happy, and they say to you, be warm. Now, what are you after they issue that statement to you? You're still cold. It hasn't changed a temperature degree for you. Or if you're hungry, someone comes to you and says, be filled. What are you after they make that statement? You're still hungry. You know, it's, it's, that statement is not a Traeger grill. It's not going to get you any food. That's what James is saying. He's implying in this illustration that when real faith sees a real brother and sister in real need, what does it do? It takes real, tangible action. Really nice words in the face of real need is really worthless. That's what James is saying. And so from that illustration, he draws this conclusion in verse 17. So also, faith by itself, in other words, a a words-only faith, a faith that merely exists in saying the right words, if it does not have works, is dead. 
So the connection James is drawing between the illustration just gave, the brother or sister in need, and his conclusion is this. The words of someone who failed to act to help a person in need are as worthless as someone who has a profession of faith but does not have any accompanying conduct, any accompanying deeds. He said a deedless faith is, is a dead faith. It's not living. It's not active. To understand the extremity of what James means when he says a words-only faith is dead and useless, picture this scenario. Imagine that you, you call up a friend because you're, you're moving, and it's a local move because nobody's allowed to move away from here anymore. We've, we've met our quota for the year, okay? But it's a local move. You need help moving stuff. So you call a friend and say, hey, I need some moving help. And he's like, hey, I'm going to go and get you help. And so your friend promptly drives down to the Palm Beach County coroner's office, and he fills his minivan with as many residents from the coroner's office <laughs> as he can. Now, if you don't know what a coroner's office is, it's, it's, it's where they keep dead people. Okay, He shows up to your house Saturday morning. You got the U-Haul truck ready. You, you have some heavy things to lift. And he drops off the residents from the coroner's office in your front yard and says, I, I brought some help. How helpful has your friend been to you? He's been about this helpful, this helpful. That's what a words-only faith is. That's about how worthful it is, how beneficial it is. A words-only faith is not beneficial to others and it is not beneficial to save. Now, second answer that James gives, verse 18 to 19. What, what kind of faith saves? Here's what James gives as a second answer. We are saved by faith alone, but not by an orthodox only faith. Not just by a right words faith that we're not, is not saving, but also just a right thinking faith. By orthodox only, I mean a faith that is all right thinking, but does nothing to translate that into right living. That's an orthodox only faith. James is concerned for the person who thinks that all faith is, is making sure that your, your theological T's are properly crossed and your doctrinal I's are properly dotted and nothing more than that. Now look at how James sets up this matter in the first half of verse 18. So he kind of has this imaginary person that he's debating with and dialoguing with. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So what James is envisioning here is someone who's raising objection to what he's just said. James is saying, faith without works is dead. And someone's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, you have faith and I have works. So here's how I picture it. Someone's saying to James, no, no, hold on just a second, James. You talk as if faith and works are these intricately connected realities and that they're strongly interrelated. But let's be clear, we're talking about two totally separate things that have no relationship to one another. Some people have one, some people have the other, some people have both, tomato, tomato, does it really matter? That's the objection that James is raising. And here's how he replies in the second half of verse 18. He says, show me your faith apart from your works. In other words, prove it. And I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, I will prove it to you. James is saying that a faith that does not have works fails the prove-it test. It cannot pass the sniff test, the prove-it test. Think about the statement, I have faith. That in and of itself is an intangible, unmeasurable statement. You can't see it under a microscope. You can't test it in a lab, as it were. When someone said, I have faith, I am a Christian. 
But when someone says, I do have faith, I, I do believe, look, look at the fruits that it's producing in my life. Look at the change it's bringing about. No, you can analyze that. You can test the fruit. You can see if it bears the quality of true saving faith. Think of it like this. Imagine that you want to buy the clippings of a mango tree. And you want to buy the clippings of a mango tree because you want to enjoy one of the greatest fruits that God has ever blessed this earth with. There's nothing that compares to a mango. And so you post on the internet in some classified section looking for clippings of mango tree, you know, willing to purchase. And you get two replies immediately. And both replies say the same exact thing. I have an amazing mango tree. I'd be happy to sell you a clipping. So you get, you get two replies, same thing, both making the statement, I have an amazing mango tree. And so what do you do? Well, you respond to each of them saying, I'm very interested in your offer. Can I sample one of the mangoes from your tree? So first person replies back. And they reply back with a lengthy, intricate description of all of the ins and outs of a mango tree. I mean, they know botany backwards and forwards. And they tell you all the details of how to care for a mango tree, how to, how to cultivate a mango tree so that you get fruit quick and it's delicious and it's wonderful. But then they end their reply by saying, I regret to inform you that you cannot sample a mango from my mango tree because it's never actually produced any mangoes. But I can assure you, I have an amazing mango tree. Well, second person replies right after that. And they say, absolutely. Sample as many mangoes as you want. Our tree produces an abundance of them. Now, illustrations break down. So for the sake of the illustration, let's say both people are telling the truth, okay? Which response are you following up on? The second one, right? Because you want real fruit. You want, to, you want to test it. You want to know that there is something you can actually sample. Which person do you believe when they say, I have an amazing mango tree? You believe the one that has the real fruit, the actual fruit from the tree. That's the point James is making. Faith and works, yes, they're, they're distinct realities. But let them never be separate realities. They are distinct, but not separate. They go together like amazing mango trees and amazing mango fruit. So James takes his counterargument one step further in verse 19. This is where he packs quite a big punch. You believe that God is one. So th this is the quintessential kind of Jewish confessional creedal statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is what they would recite day in and day out. That is the essential confession of a Jewish person. And he's primarily writing to Jewish Christians. Say, so you believe that God is one. You do well. Fantastic. I think you can hear a bit of biting sarcasm in what he says. And here's where he basically punches them across the face with his argument. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. In the Gospels, when you read the Gospel accounts, who is the first group to recognize who Jesus is and rightly identify him. It's not the disciples, not the crowds, not the, it's the demons. Mark 1.24, Jesus comes to someone who's possessed by a demon, he says, and the demon says to him, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Mark's gospel, the first time anyone recognizes Jesus, it is a demon. 
And not only do they have a more accurate theology of Jesus, they tremble before his authority. They know that they cannot resist his will or his commands. What have you come to do with us? They know that they can't stop him. So what James is saying is there is a degree to which the demons have orthodoxy and orthopathy. They have right thinking and even right feeling to a degree. But who here would argue that they have saving faith? They know this about Jesus and they despise it with every fiber in their being. They know the authority of Jesus and they resist it with every fiber in their being. So the point James is making, kind of the blow he's delivering is this. Those who believe, just intellectually speaking, but who do not fear God are even worse than the demons. And those who believe and tremble, but who do not practice what they profess are in a sense no different than the demons. Ouch. A words-only faith is dead, and an orthodox-only faith is, as James says, demonic. Now, one mark of growing spiritual health and maturity is that you start to have a a self-awareness of where are my own weaknesses, where are my own shortcomings? As an individual, as, as a community, as a church, growing health equals growing self-awareness. Where am I falling short? Where are my weaknesses? One of the weaknesses and shortcomings that tends to show up in a reformed church with a doctrinally-minded pastor, which I consider myself to be one, is that it becomes very easy to separate doctrine from deeds, to not do the work of, of translating right thinking into right living. And then right thinking becomes an end in itself and it becomes cold and lifeless and barren and it produces cold and lifeless and barren people. And so I think that's something we need to be aware of because in the kind of environment, the maybe, I don't I want to say click, but maybe in the, in the categories that we would fall into as this church with this pastor and, and oftentimes churches in, in many ways can sometimes take on the characteristics of, of its leadership. And so you guys, are, you guys are doomed, to be honest. So, um, but we need to be aware of those. Self-awareness is half the battle. So, so I'm not saying outside the doors of San Harbor, we should put up a sign that says, abandon hope all ye who enter here. <laughs> okay. But it is healthy to, to be aware of those things so that you're more zealous to guard against it. So that you kind of give that, that, that second level effort in those areas where you know you're weakest to, to compensate and to uh, work on those. We need to see right thinking translated into right living. All right, now third answer. So we move from negation. It's not words only. It's not orthodox only, but now to affirmation. We are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. It is living and active and fruitful. We are saved by faith alone, but James says, saving faith is never alone. It is living and active and brings forth fruit. So he's going to give two examples from two different kind of extremes of the Old Testament to illustrate the kind of faith that saves. Saving faith, we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Two illustrations. First one is Abraham. So Abraham is, he's the father of the faith. He is the person that every Jewish person looked up to. He is the model of the life of faith, the one who everyone has an utmost respect for. 
So he gives this example from the life of Abraham. Look at verses 21 to 23. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So James is taking two episodes from Abraham's life and drawing a connection between them to, sh- to illustrate his point. That we're saved by faith alone, but never by a faith that is alone. So he brings our attention to Genesis 22, when Abraham is called to, to offer his son Isaac, the, the son of promise, the son in whom all the hopes of redemption are resting, because this is the one son born to Abraham and Sarah. And he's drawing a connection between that episode and Genesis 15:6. This is before Isaac was born. This is 30 years earlier when he has no option for the promise to pass on through him. And God says, look at the stars. Can you number them? So will your offspring be. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So here's the connection that James is drawing. Genesis 15 is that moment when Abraham believed and was declared by God to be righteous. But when did Abraham demonstrate and give evidence of that faith? When did Abraham give practical, tangible evidence of the righteousness that he had by faith? It was Genesis 22. How do we know Abraham believed? Because he obeyed. Because he demonstrated the obedience of faith by doing the thing that God had called him to. Now, two clarifying questions. How much did Abraham's obedience in Genesis 22 contribute to or alter, or even improve the declaration of righteousness that he received in Genesis 15. This much. It improved it that much. That's to say, it knew anything. But how much did Abraham's obedience in Genesis 22 serve to demonstrate the reality of the genuineness of his faith exercised in Genesis 15? Much in every way. Much in every way. Think of it like this. Mangoes on a mango tree do not essentially constitute it as a mango tree. They don't make it a mango tree as if it were some other kind of tree up until only that moment when mangoes started to be produced. It was a mango tree right from its beginning as it was a seed in the ground sprouting out roots and popping up from the soil. But when it does eventually produce mangoes, they act, that that fruit, acts as the definitive proof that it truly what it has it truly is what it has been all along namely a mango tree that's the point that james is making between genesis 22 and genesis 15 faith and obedience and their relationship well one more illustration verse 25 james appeals to the example of rahab now as i was looking i was like why does he go from abraham to rahab and and here's here's what i think why he picks these two illustrations It's, it's actually quite genius he's picking Two illustrations that would have come kind of on the extreme opposite ends of a Jewish mindset in thinking of Old Testament examples of someone who had faith. Abraham is the father faith. He's the one that everyone looks up to and respects. So you could see someone looking at Abraham and saying, well, he's a super saint. Of course he had works. I mean, we're talking about father Abraham, but he's the exception, not the rule. And he's like, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. Consider Rahab. Consider Rahab, who on on the one sense in the Jewish mindset was on the opposite, opposite extreme of Abraham. She's a Gentile woman who has a 
suspect vocation, and yet the Bible clearly declares that she was justified. She was brought in to the people of God and constituted as one of God's people. And so by showing the examples on the extremes, James is showing that he is not making an exception. He is giving us the rule. He's showing us the rule that proves all the other exceptions. So look at 2.25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So when Rahab received the spies who were there, she made a profession of faith. I have heard of the God of Israel. I, I know who he is. Now, how do we know she wasn't just saying what they wanted to hear? How do you know she wasn't just saving her own skin? Because she put her own skin on the line to hide these spies, to send them off in another direction. And she demonstrated the very works that proved that her faith was real by saving the lives of the spies at potential the cost of her own life because of the soldiers that were looking for them. That's James' argument. James concludes his argument. What kind of faith saves? By saying it's not a words-only faith. It is not an orthodox-only faith. But it is a living and active faith because faith without fruits is dead. So that's James. Now that we've sought to understand James on his own terms, let's move on and try and see how do James and Paul agree? How do, we, how do we harmonize them? How do we see them as allies rather than enemies? So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to risk uh, a form of illustration that I'm just going to do it. Okay, here we go. All right. My wife warned me, but I, you know, I love to tread where angels fear to go. Okay. So to show that James and Paul are allies with one another rather than enemies, consider this fictional dialogue between the two. Okay. So in this fictional dialogue, let's imagine that James and Paul have just written their letters of James and Romans, and they're sitting down to read what each other has written, and they have some questions for each other, okay? So James starts out by saying, you know, Paul, I've just read in Romans where you say, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. What, what is your focus in that statement? So Paul replies, I'm focusing on the root of justification what theologians in centuries to come will call the instrumental cause of justification. And funny you should ask me about that, James, because I've just read in your letter where you say something that sounds quite different. You say, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What's your focus in that statement? James replies, I'm focused not on the root of justification, but on the fruit of justification what theologians in centuries to come will call the primary evidence or consequence of justification. You know, Paul, I, I would imagine, as we're talking about this, that people find it a bit odd that we use the same word to focus on two different things. In what sense, Paul, are you using the word justified? Paul re re replies, I'm using justified in its legal sense. Think about it like in, in a courtroom, James, as in God legally declares as the judge of all the earth, that a sinner by faith in Christ is righteous. Now, how about you, James? In what sense are you using the word justified? I, I like your use, but mine's actually quite different. I'm using justified in its practical evidentiary sense. Like when we say wisdom is justified by her deeds. We don't mean that wisdom goes in a courtroom and is on trial and has to be declared righteous. We mean that when people are wise and they act out of their wisdom, it demonstrates what wisdom really is. It gives practical evidence of the reality of wisdom. 
The deeds don't declare wisdom to be wisdom. They demonstrate that wisdom is in fact wisdom. That's how I mean it, Paul. Now, Paul, when you write this section of Romans, what's the main question that you're seeking to answer? Because it seems different than mine. Paul, I, I think you're right. I'm seeking to answer the question, what saves us? Is it faith or is it works? Well, how about you? What's, what's your driving question, James? James responds. I'm seeking to answer a different question. My question is, what kind of faith saves us? Is it a faith without works or is it a faith that works? So Paul replies back, James, it seems like you're combating some serious error in your argument. You're calling people demons here. So what error would that be that you're combating? James replies, I'm seeking to combat the antinomian who regards works too little by denying that the roots of faith necessarily produce the fruits of good works. Now, Paul, it seems that you're combating a serious error as well. Care to explain? Not at all. I'm seeking to combat the legalist who regards works too much by affirming that our works can somehow merit the grace of God. Now, I notice that you use Abraham as an example to make your case. I did the same thing. I was pointing out the occasion when Abraham was declared righteous, namely before he had done anything, before there was any obedience. It was by faith, by faith alone. How does your example of Abraham function in your argument? James replies, I'm actually using a different episode of Abraham's life to make a different point. I was pointing out the occasion, not when Abraham believed, but when he demonstrated his belief by his obedience through his works. So Paul, wrapping up the conversation, I'm glad to hear that we're in total agreement, even though we're addressing different questions and combating different errors. James responds, you know, me too. I think it's time to send off the letters. I can't imagine anyone getting confused by what we have to say. So all that to say, in summary, I don't think there's any conflict between James and Paul. They have a different focus. They're answering different questions. They have a different error that they're trying to combat. One, Paul, is looking at the root system of faith. And James is looking at the fruit of faith. So James is concerned that we have a faith that works, a faith that bears fruit. Not just big talk, not just a faith that thinks big thoughts, but a faith that bears much fruit. So how do we, by God's grace, seek to cultivate the fruit that should come from faith? In one sense, this, this is an impossible question to answer. I, 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 don't, I don't have the answers, but I want to try to be helpful. So how do we, by God's grace, cultivate the fruit that should come forth from faith? We must always start with we must always remember this, first and foremost. We must sink our roots ever deeper into the Savior. A tree that bears much fruit has one common characteristic. It has a deep and healthy root system. Christian fruit cannot be manufactured. It cannot be fabricated. You can't go out, buy works, and then staple them on the tree of your life. It's not how it works. They will die and rot. They must grow organically out of the soil of knowing Christ. That's where real fruit comes from. So Christian, be reminded, there will not be real generosity without knowing our really generous Savior. There will not be real sacrificial service without really knowing the one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. That's where it starts. That's where it grows. That's where it deepens. Well, second, considering James' warning about a words-only faith, 
It's a good reminder to us that we need to be careful about what we say and often fail to do, especially when it comes to kind of religious pious language. I've lost count of the number of times that I've said something like, and maybe you can relate to this, I'll be praying for you. Or it sounds like you're dealing with a lot. Let's, let's get together and talk. Or hey, whatever it is, I'm here for you. I can count the number of times I've said those and have not done them, have failed to produce them, have failed to follow up on them, have way overpromised and way under-delivered. Which is a good reminder that we not, we not only should be careful about what we say, but we should be careful that we follow up with what we say. And as practical as something is, write the prayer request down. Put it on your calendar right there. Make it an appointment that you need to keep so that you can follow up on what you have said to another brother or sister. We need to be intentional about following up on what we say, lest our talk become cheap. Third, James warns us about an orthodox only faith. And this is a good reminder that when we read scripture, when we read sound doctrinal or devotional books, make sure we read not just for information, but for transformation. We need to do the hard work of translation, not from English to some other language, but from what we know to what we do, what the theory to the practice. James wants us to be obsessed with the so what question, the now what question. You, you gather need information, James says, so what? You learned amazing things about X, Y, and Z, so what? James wants us to ask the so what question, the now what question. So how then should I live is a question that we should be constantly asking of what we're learning. This last one, I'm not quite sure how to put this. I couldn't even finish writing it because well, I ran out of time, but I'm, I'm going to go for it, okay? I'm just, we're just being bold this morning, okay? As a general principle, okay, not a universal rule. I'm trying to clarify this. When you sense the Lord prompting you to act, and it's in accord with his word, so maybe it's some case of generosity, some case of service, some case of maybe a, a relational checkup, some case of, I just want to bless someone unexpectedly. When, when you sense the Lord prompting you that way, as a general rule, not a universal, a general principle, not a universal rule, act on that, act on that. that that's often, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, trying to be, I'm not a subjectivist, okay? I don't just believe, you know, follow your feelings wherever they lead you, your, let your conscience be your guide, that kind of thing. I'm not Pinocchio here, but the Lord does take what we have learned from scripture, and we're real people living in real places, in real circumstances, and he, he presses that into us so that when there is something that that connects with, he often prompts us to act on those things. So as a general principle, when you sense the Lord prompting you to do those things, it is often wise, it is more blessed to do those things than to not. So I don't, I don't know what that always looks like. You know, one person who I was always encouraged by this, and I can say this because they're not here, uh, was Charlie Freeland. Charlie Freeland, as many of you know, she, she, would, she was like a blessing machine. It was like, you didn't even put money in it, you were blessed by things she would do. It was, it was amazing. Just meals and gifts and, and, and things like that. You know, I, I said, I, I take cash, but it never worked out. <laughs> but it was, it was an example I was very encouraged by that she was, she, she did not need a formula. She did not need um, some sort of like five-step plan. She, she just acted on how the Lord was encouraging her to be a blessing to others. And I thought that, that's a good example because I, I don't often do that. And so, so that's what I leave. We want a faith that works, a faith that is deep and healthy roots sunk into Christ and is bearing fruits for him. So we need to pray to that end. So let's, let's go to the Lord and pray.